Hello there. I'm back with another episode of History Obscura. Was I on an impromptu hiatus recently? Yes. I hope you weren't terribly put out. As it happens, I've been fiddling around in the show's Patreon, designing a few gifts for patrons, so keep an eye out for that in the near future. Now, I expect you're here for a story, so here's a continuance of something I began last year, Ten Days in a Madhouse, the true tale of 19th century New York journalist Nellie Bly, undercover in the notorious insane asylum known as Blackwell's Island. Here I'm picking the story back up at Chapter 8, when Nellie is finally committed to the insane asylum, after being deposited there by ferry boat. As the wagon was rapidly driven through the beautiful lawns up to the asylum, my feelings of satisfaction at having attained the object of my work were greatly dampened by the look of distress on the faces of my companions. Poor women. They had no hopes of a speedy delivery. They were being driven to a prison, through no fault of their own, in all probability for life. In comparison, how much easier it would be to walk to the gallows than to this tomb of living horrors. On the wagon sped, and I, as well as my comrades, gave a despairing farewell glance at freedom as we came in sight of the long stone buildings. We passed one low building, and the stench was so horrible that I was compelled to hold my breath, and I mentally decided that it was the kitchen. I afterward found I was correct in my surmise and smiled at the signboard at the end of the walk that said, Visitors are not allowed on this road. I don't think the sign would be necessary if they once tried the road especially on a warm day. The wagon stopped, and the nurse and officer in charge told us to get out. The nurse added, Thank God they came quietly. We obeyed orders to go ahead up a flight of narrow stone steps, which had evidently been built for the accommodation of people who climb stairs three at a time. I wondered if my companions knew where we were, so I said to Miss Tilly Mayard, Where are we? At the Blackwell's Island Lunatic Asylum, she answered, sadly. Are you crazy? I asked. No, she replied. But as we've been sent here, we will have to be quiet until we find some means of escape. They will be few, though, if all the doctors, as Dr. Field, refused to listen to me and give me a chance to prove my sanity. We were ushered into a narrow vestibule and the door was locked behind us. In spite of the knowledge of my sanity and the assurance that I would be released in a few days, my heart gave a sharp twinge. Pronounced insane by four expert doctors and shut up behind the unmerciful bolts and bars of a madhouse. Not to be confined alone, but to be a companion, day and night, of senseless, chattering lunatics. To sleep with them, to eat with them, to be considered one of them, 
was an uncomfortable position. Timidly, we followed the nurse up to the long, uncarpeted hall to a room filled by so-called crazy women. We were told to sit down, and some of the patients kindly made room for us. They looked at us curiously, and one came up to me and asked, Who sent you here? The doctors, I answered. What for? She persisted. Well, they say I am insane. Insane, she repeated, incredulous. It cannot be seen in your face. This woman was too clever, I concluded, and was glad to answer the roughly given orders to follow the nurse to see the doctor. This nurse, Miss Group, by the way, had a nice German face, and if I had not detected certain hard lines about the mouth, I might have expected, as did my companions, to receive but kindness from her. She left us in a small waiting room at the end of the hall, and left us alone while she went into a small office opening into the sitting or receiving room. I like to go down in the wagon, she said to the invisible party on the inside. It helps to break up the day. He answered her that the open air improved her looks, and she again appeared before us all smiles and simpers. Come here, Tilly Maynard, she said. Miss Maynard obeyed, and though I could not see into the office, I could hear her gently but firmly pleading her case. All her remarks were as rational as any I ever heard, and I thought no good physician could help but be impressed with her story. She told of her recent illness, that she was suffering from nervous debility. She begged that they try all their tests for insanity, if they had any, and give her justice. Poor girl. How my heart ached for her. I determined then and there that I would try by every means to make my mission of benefit to my suffering sisters. That I would show how they are committed without ample trial. Without one word of sympathy or encouragement, she was back to where we sat. Mrs. Louis Shantz was taken into the presence of Dr. Kinnear, the medical man. Your name? he asked loudly. She answered in German, saying she did not speak English, nor could she understand it. However, when he said Mrs. Louise Shans, she said, yeah, yeah. Then he tried other questions, and when he found she could not understand one word of English, he said to Miss Group, You're a German. Speak to her for me. Miss Group proved to be one of those people who are ashamed of their nationality, and she refused, saying she could understand but few words of her mother tongue. You know you speak German. Ask this woman what her husband does. And they both laughed as if they were enjoying a joke. I can't speak but a few words, she protested but at last she managed to ascertain the occupation of Mr. Shans. Now what was the use of lying to me? asked the doctor, with a laugh which dispelled the rudeness. I can't speak anymore, she said, and she did not. Thus was Mrs. Louise Shans consigned to the asylum without a chance of making herself understood. Can such carelessness be excused, I wonder? 
when it is so easy to get an interpreter? If the confinement was but for a few days, one might question the necessity. But here was a woman taken without her own consent from the free world to an asylum, and there given no chance to prove her sanity. Confined most probably for life behind asylum bars, without even being told in her language the why and the wherefore. Compare this with a criminal who was given every chance to prove his innocence. Who would not rather be a murderer and take the chance for life than be declared insane without hope of escape? Mrs. Shans begged in German to know where she was and pleaded for liberty. Her voice broken by sobs, she was led unheard out to us. Mrs. Fox was then put through this weak, trifling examination and brought from the office, convicted. Miss Annie Neville took her turn, and I was again left to the last. I had by this time determined to act as I do when free, except that I would refuse to tell who I was or where my home was. Chapter 9 An Expert at Work Nellie Brown, the doctor wants you, said Miss Group. I went in and was told to sit down opposite Dr. Kinnear at the desk. What is your name? he asked, without looking up. Nellie Brown, I replied easily. Where is your home? Writing what I had said down in a large book. In Cuba. Oh, he ejaculated with sudden understanding, then addressing the nurse. Did you see anything in the papers about her? Yes, she replied. I saw a long account of this girl in the sun on Sunday. Then the doctor said, Keep her here until I go to the office and see the notice again. He left us, and I was relieved of my hat and shawl. On his return, he said he'd been unable to find the paper but he related the story of my debut, as he'd read it, to the nurse. What's the color of her eyes? Miss Group looked and answered, Gray, although everybody had always said my eyes were brown or hazel. What's your age? he asked, and as I answered, Nineteen last May. He turned to the nurse and said, When do you get your next pass? This, I ascertained, was a leave of absence, or day off. Next Saturday, she said, with a laugh. You will go to town? And they both laughed as she answered in the affirmative, and he said, Measure her. I was stood under a measure, and it was brought down tightly on my head. What is it? asked the doctor. Now you know I can't tell, she said. Yes, you can. Go ahead. What height? I don't know. There are some figures there, but I can't tell. Yes, you can. Now look and tell me. I can't. Do it yourself. And they laughed again as the doctor left his place at the desk and came forward to see for himself. Five feet, five inches. Don't you see? He said, taking her hand and touching the figures. By her voice, I knew she did not understand yet, but that was no concern of mine, as the doctor seemed to find a pleasure in aiding her. 
Then I was put on the scales and she worked around until she got them to balance. How much? asked the doctor, having resumed his position at the desk. I don't know, you will have to see for yourself, she replied, calling him by his Christian name, which I have forgotten. He turned and, also addressing her by her baptismal name, said, You are getting too fresh. And they both laughed. I then told the weight, 112 pounds, to the nurse, and she in turn told the doctor. What time are you going to supper? he asked, and she told him. He gave the nurse more attention than he did me, and asked her six questions to every one of me. Then he wrote my fate in the book before him. I said, I am not sick and I do not want to stay here. No one has a right to shut me up in this manner. He took no notice of my remarks, and having completed his writings, as well as his talk with the nurse for the moment, he said that would do, and with my companions, I went back to the sitting room. They asked me if I played the piano. Oh yes, ever since I was a child, I replied. Then they insisted that I should play, and they seated me on a wooden chair before an old-fashioned square. I struck a few notes, and the untuned response set a grinding chill through me. How horrible, I exclaimed, turning to a nurse, Miss McCartan, who stood at my side. I never touched a piano as much out of tune. It's a pity of you, she said spitefully. We'll have to get one made to order for you. I began to play the variations of Home Sweet Home. The talking ceased and every patient sat silent while my cold fingers moved slowly and stiffly over the keyboard. I finished in an aimless fashion and refused all requests to play more. Not seeing an available place to sit, I still occupied the chair in front of the piano while I sized up my surroundings. It was a long, bare room with bare yellow benches encircling it. These benches, which were perfectly straight and just as uncomfortable, would hold five people, although in almost every instance six were crowded onto them. Barred windows, built about five feet from the floor, faced the two double doors which led into the hall. The bare white walls were somewhat relieved by three lithographs, one of Fritz Emmett, and the others of Negro minstrels. In the center of the room was a large table covered with a white bedspread, and around it sat the nurses. Everything was spotlessly clean, and I thought what good workers the nurses must be to keep such order. In a few days after, how I laughed at my own stupidity to think the nurses would work. When they found I would not play anymore, Miss McCartan came up to me, saying, roughly, Get away from here, and closed the piano with a bang. Brown, come here, was the next order I got from a rough, red-faced woman at the table. What have you on? My clothing, I replied. She lifted my dress and skirts and wrote down one pair of shoes, one pair of stockings, one cloth dress, one sailor hat, and so on. 
Chapter 10 My First Supper This examination over, we heard someone yell, Go out into the hall! One of the patients kindly explained that this was an invitation to supper. We latecomers tried to keep together, so we entered the hall and stood at the door where all the women had crowded. How we shivered as we stood there. The windows were open and the draft went whizzing through the hall. The patients looked blue with cold, and the minutes stretched into a quarter of an hour. At last, one of the nurses went forward and unlocked a door, through which we all crowded to a landing of the stairway. Here again came a long halt directly before an open window. How very imprudent for the attendants to keep these thinly clad women standing here in the cold, said Miss Neville. I looked at the poor, crazy captives shivering and added emphatically, It's horribly brutal. While they stood there, I thought I would not relish supper that night. They looked so lost and hopeless. Some were chattering nonsense to invisible persons. Others were laughing or crying aimlessly. And one old, gray-haired woman was nudging me. And with winks and sage noddings of the head and pitiful uplifting of the eyes and hands, was assuring me that I must not mind the poor creatures, as they were all mad. Stop at the heater, was then ordered, and get in line two by two. Mary, get a companion. How many times must I tell you to keep in line? Stand still. And as the orders were issued, a shove and a push were administered, and often a slap on the ears. After this third and final halt, we were marched into a long, narrow dining room where a rush was made for the table. The table reached the length of the room and was uncovered and uninviting. Long benches without backs were put for the patients to sit on, and over these they had to crawl in order to face the table. Placed close together all along the table were large dressing bowls filled with a pinkish-looking stuff which the patients called tea. By each bowl was laid a piece of bread, cut thick and buttered. A small saucer containing five prunes accompanied the bread. One fat woman made a rush and, jerking up several saucers from those around her, emptied their contents into her own saucer. Then, while holding to her own bowl, she lifted up another and drained its contents in one gulp. This she did in shorter a time than it takes to tell it. Indeed, I was so amused at her successful grabbings that when I looked at my own share, the woman opposite, without so much as a by-your-leave, grabbed my bread and left me without any. Another patient, seeing this, kindly offered me hers, but I declined with thanks and turned to the nurse and asked for more. As she flung a thick piece down on the table, she made some remark about the fact that if I forgot where my home was, I had not forgotten how to eat. I tried the bread, but the butter was so horrible that one could not eat it. A blue-eyed German girl on the opposite side of the table told me I could have bread unbuttered if I wished, and that very few were able to eat the butter. I turned my attention to the prunes and found that very few of them would be sufficient. A 
patient near asked me to give them to her, and I did so. My bowl of tea was all that was left. I tasted, and one taste was enough. It had no sugar, and it tasted as if it had been made in copper. It was as weak as water. This was also transferred to a hungrier patient, in spite of the protest of Miss Neville. You must force the food down, she said, else you will be sick. And who knows but what, with these surroundings, you may go crazy. To have a good brain, the stomach must be cared for. It is impossible for me to eat that stuff, I replied, and despite all her urging, I ate nothing that night. It did not require much time for the patients to consume all that was eatable on the table, and then we got our orders to form in line in the hall. When this was done, the doors before us were unlocked, and we were ordered to proceed back to the sitting room. Many of the patients crowded near us, and I was again urged to play, both by them and the nurses. To please the patients, I promised to play, and Miss Tilly Maynard was to sing. The first thing she asked me to play was Rockabye Baby, and I did so. She sang it beautifully. <laughs> 